some of us are really up close and personal. Right? Um, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open to the book of Psalms. Uh, if you open basically square in the middle of your Bible, you'll probably be in the Psalms or at least close to it. We're going to read a selection of verses from Psalm 22. If you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Psalm 22, picking up in verse 22. Here, a few pages turn. <laughs> David writes, and this is the word of the Lord. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Father, again, uh, we give you thanks. Thank you for giving us the gift of your presence. Thank you for breaking chains and tearing down strongholds that have held your people captive. Please continue to do that work, Lord. Please continue to do that work through the proclamation of your word. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would by my lips and my tongue that no false word might pass from them. Move me aside completely. For spirit, you have the benefit of being able to skip the ears. You can speak straight to the heart. And so once you do that this morning, we ask. In great love. So, uh, in fiction, movies, TV, and books, there's this common trait <coughs> that I really enjoy. Uh, this is the, the fundamental form of the trope, though it comes in various shapes and sizes. Here's the most fundamental form. Character A saves the life of character B. And character B is so overwhelmed with gratitude at having been saved that they vow to spend the rest of their life in service to character A 
because character A has saved their life, they're going to give the remainder of their life to character A. This trope is known as a life debt. The life debt. There are uh, many shapes and sizes of the life debt trope, and, and some of them, here, here's a couple of my favorites. Maybe uh, any Star Wars fans in the room. There's a, the most fundamental form of the life debt is in the Star Wars story. Han and Chewie. Han saves Chewbacca's life. We know from uh, Solo, a Star Wars story, and Chewie vows to spend the rest of his life serving, protecting, and helping out Han because he owes him a life debt. Uh, another classic favorite, maybe you're not into Star Wars, Harry Potter. Harry Potter saves Dobby's life, and Dobby, the house elf, vows to spend the rest of his life serving, protecting, and helping Harry. Now, this particular life debt trope introduces one of the nuances, which is that the saved uh, service to the savior is unwelcome. Uh, Dobby is quite an annoyance in his attempts to help Harry, and he just ruins everything. Uh, another classic trope, maybe you're not into sci-fi or fantasy, uh, but if you aren't into this movie, I've got nothing for you. <laughs> Toy Story. <laughs> all right, Toy Story, one of the most classic films of all time. Y'all remember those squeaky green alien guys, right? You've saved our lives. We are eternally grateful. <laughs> Buzz saves their life, and they owe him a life debt. They're so overwhelmed with gratitude at being saved that they vow to spend the rest of their lives, the rest of eternity, in service to Buzz. But perhaps uh, a more apt uh, version of the life debt trope for us, considering the season that we're in comes from a classic Christmas movie, White Christmas. Anybody seen White Christmas? Right, some of you need to watch White Christmas tonight. Um, White Christmas is a classic Christmas movie starring Bing Crosby. It's the, the movie that made famous the song White Christmas. And in White Christmas, Bing Crosby plays Captain Wallace, who is a, a captain in the military during World War II, and at their camp, at their base, uh, there's a bombing that takes place. And uh, the life of Captain Wallace is in danger until Private Phil, one of his comrades in arms, shoves him out of harm's way uh, from a, a wall that's about to topple onto his head, and he saves his life. And in the process, Private Phil injures his arm pretty badly. And Bing Crosby's character, Captain Wallace, is so overwhelmed with gratitude at having been saved, he vows to make it up to Private Phil. And the, the rest of the movie, Private Phil is unabashedly asking for things from Captain Wallace. And what's different about this life debt trope is that the one who owes the life debt to the Savior actually stops being grateful and doesn't really want to do the things that he's being asked. But whenever uh, Private Phil senses the hesitation in Bing Crosby's character to fulfill his life debt, what does he do? You remember? He grabs his arm. Ah, old war wound. <laughs> and then Bing Crosby's like, okay, fine. I'll do whatever you ask. And, uh, and it goes on like this. Well, if you're a biblically aware consumer of fiction, then you know that this trope does not originate with fiction. It originates, like all good stories, by the way, 
from the Bible. Uh, God is the inventor of storytelling. He's the best storyteller who has ever lived and ever will live. And every good story comes from the Bible, and I'll argue that with you later if you disagree. <laughs> the life that comes to us from Scripture, and here's the story. God created man and woman in his image and his likeness. Man and woman sinned against God, breaking the relationship that we had, and we all were headed straight for a fiery death, eternity in hell. But God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, stepped into a human body in order to live the life that we couldn't, die the death that we deserved, and save us from our sin. In response to this incredible act of heroism from Jesus Christ, we owe Jesus a life debt. We owe Jesus a life debt. And Psalm 22 is, in my opinion, one of the most complete pictures in a single chapter of Scripture of the life debt story that we owe Jesus. In the portion that we read a few minutes ago, 22 through 31, it's all about the, the end of the life debt trope, the part where the, the author is vowing to live his life for Jesus because he's so grateful at having been saved. We read things like uh, the, that I will praise you, that from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows. I will bow down before you. Uh, you rule, I will worship. I will feast and worship. We will kneel, uh, and so on and so forth. But this uh, passage tells actually the whole story. And it's not David writing generically about a life debt that he feels he owes to God kind of generically. This passage is actually David writing about a life debt that he owes to Jesus specifically. Now you may be asking, well, Pastor Zach, how is that possible? Psalm 22 was written hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth as a baby born in a manger. David's theology of the Trinity at the time of his writing was foggy at best, and you might be saying, well, Pastor Zach, my theology of the Trinity is foggy at best. Your theology of the Trinity is better than David's. David has never seen any version of the Gospels that Jesus lived on earth because this happened long before. But even so, this passage is about the life death that David that you, that I owe, not just to God, to Trinity generically, but to Jesus specifically, and I'll show you how. In the Old Testament, there are many Messianic prophecies, but there are two chapters in the Old Testament that I think are the most complete, robust, mind-blowing Messianic prophecies in all of Scripture. Those two chapters are Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, our passage for this morning. And so we're going to walk together through the first half of Psalm 22, building up to the part that we read today, just to see how this passage is specifically about Jesus. So on the screen, you'll see both together. Psalm 22, verse 1. David writes this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Matthew 27, verse 46 from the cross, it was about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, 
Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Continuing on in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8, David writes this, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. And back over to Matthew 27, in verses 39 and 43, it says this, Those who passed by Jesus as he hung on the cross hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. This is what they said. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. David wrote, they hurl insults. Those who pass by hurl insults to Jesus. They said he trusts in the Lord, but the Lord rescued him. And those who passed by Jesus said the same thing. Continuing on in Psalm 22, verse 14, David wrote this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. David was very likely writing metaphorically. He was feeling like everything that he had to give was spent in the face of his fierce enemies. But for Jesus, this was quite literal. In John 19, 34, one of the soldiers came to pierce Jesus' side with a spear to make sure that he was truly dead. And the, the text tells us that it brought a sudden flow of blood and water. <coughs> Continuing in Psalm 22, verse 15, David wrote, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, like a dry piece of pottery, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. In the Gospel of John, chapter 19, Jesus said from the cross, arguably moments before he died, I'm thirsty. And in Psalm 22, verse 18, David wrote, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Two things that David said his enemies are doing, dividing his clothes and casting lots for his garment, singular. And in John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, it says this, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. Two things David said his enemies were doing. Two things the Roman soldiers did with Jesus. You ever think about what had to happen for this prophecy to come true? In the risk of being irreverent, Jesus had to wake up that morning and put on a, his particular undergarment. I don't know how many pairs he had, but he had at least one pair that was cut from a single piece of cloth. Not multiple pieces stitched together that could be torn and shared amongst the soldiers. He had his clothes, his outer garments, divided up amongst the four, just as in Psalm 22, and his single undergarment, they cast him out <coughs> instead of tearing him and robbing him of all his power. <coughs> Psalm 22 is one of the most powerful messianic prophecies that we have in all of Scripture because of how full of connection, indescribable, inexplainable connection to the story of Jesus. But in the second half, the prophecy turns. 
It turns from being about Jesus in the positive to being about Jesus in the negative. You see, David has been writing about his enemies and what they're doing to him, and then he shifts, and he asks God for help in verse 19. He says, but you, Lord, what a prayer. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And having been saved, he transitions into verse 22, our passage for today. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. And this is the explanation for why that David gives in verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. In verse 24 of Psalm 22, the messianic prophecy shifts from being about Jesus in the positive to being about Jesus in the negative. Here's what I mean. In Psalm Isaiah 53, the other passage of uh, messianic prophecy that I mentioned, it says this. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. The psalmist's experience of God's rescue was that he was not despised and scorned in his suffering, that he did not have God's face hidden from him, but that God listened to his cry for help. And yet, here's Jesus on the cross, Violence divided, lots cast, poured out like water. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While we are not despised, Jesus was. While we are not rejected, Jesus was. While we have the face of God turned to us in our suffering, Jesus did not. And this passage all builds to the critical point. We owe Jesus a life debt. Jesus has paid the price we could never hope to. And in finding that we've been saved from our sin, saved from certain death, we find, hopefully, that we're so grateful for being rescued from hell that we vow to serve Jesus with all that we have and all that we are for the rest of our lives. And here's the reality, brothers and sisters, you know me. You know this is very hard to do. Not one of us in the room is doing this perfectly. But I want to ask you to do some self-reflection. What would it look like in your life if all that you had, all that you are, was offered to Jesus in an attempt to pay back your life debt? In response to the fact that he gave his life to save yours, you gave your life to serve his. What would that look like? 
Here's a few examples of things that we might surrender to the worship of Jesus. This is probably the biggest one and the most difficult, our time. What would it look like if all of your time for the rest of your days was brought into submission to the kingship of Jesus? What would it look like if every ounce of the time that you have been given, not any day is promised to us, but every day you wake up and you have breath in your lungs, what would it look like if all of that time you've been given was brought into submission to the kingship of Jesus? Or how about this one, if you're in the room and you're married, what would it look like if your marriage was brought under submission to the lordship, the kingship of Jesus? How would you treat your spouse? How would you speak to one another? How would you make decisions together? A lot of things flow forth from this. What would it look like if your children were brought into submission to the Lordship of Jesus? What sort of decisions would you make on their behalf? How would you parent them? How would you discipline them? What things would you sign them up for? How would you allocate the use of their time? How would you disciple them to be followers of Jesus if your children were brought into complete submission to his kingship? Here's a tough one. What about your money? What if your money, all of your money, was brought into submission to the kingship of Jesus? Not just your charitable giving, not just your gifts of generosity, but every purchase, all of the stewardship of all that you have was brought into submission to the kingship of Jesus. What would that look like? How would that impact the things that you spent your money on? What about this? What about your thoughts? What if all your thoughts were brought into submission to the kingship of Jesus? That one's almost laughable. We can't control our thoughts half the time. What would it look like? We know that the enemy is going to send thoughts into our mind, that things are going to rise up, that the flesh, the world, and the devil are going to put thoughts in our mind that, that are not submit, submitted to the kingship of Jesus. What would it look like if the way that we responded to those thoughts, the way that we took those thoughts captive, as the scripture said, was in such a way as to be under the submission of the kingship of Jesus? What about your comfort zone? What if you brought your comfort zone in? under submission to the kingship of Jesus? How would that impact your worship? Would you raise your hands more? Did you know the Bible commands us to raise our hands in worship? If you brought your worship and your comfort zone under the submission of the kingship of Jesus, how would that impact the way that you sing? Would you kneel? Would you be less worried about what the people around you are thinking and more worried about what the king is thinking? What if you brought your friendships under the submission of the kingship of Jesus? What if you brought your job under the submission of the kingship of Jesus? And I mean that in the day-to-day, minute-to-minute decisions of how you spend your time at work, and also in, in the grand scale, what sort of decisions about your vocation, what, what job you make. Would you make decisions based on where you were offered the most money, what was the, the logical sense, or, or would you ask God, Jesus, 
How can I surrender to your kingship? Tell me what you want me to do in my vocation, in my career. How about your housework? What if you brought all your housework under submission to the kingship of Jesus? What if you swept as unto the Lord? What if you mopped and did dishes as unto the Lord? What if you did your laundry as unto the Lord? What would that look like? How would that take place in your heart? What about your eating habits and your hobbies? What would it look like if those were brought under the submission of the kingship of Jesus? One last one, and it's going to step on some toes. What if you brought the way that you drive under the kingship of Jesus? How would your driving look? How would your uh, exclamation of your driving look? <laughs> Here's the point of such a long list. Everything we have, every ounce of our life that we get to live, we owe to Jesus in a life debt because Jesus gave everything he had, every ounce of life he has to live so that you might have yours. But here's the good news. There's a critical distinction between the life debt of white Christmas and the life debt we owe to Jesus. In the life debt of white Christmas, it's a life debt of obligation. But in our life debt to Jesus, it's a life debt of love. You might say, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between a life debt of obligation and a life debt of love? Because there are some similarities. If you'll remember in white Christmas, every time that Phil wanted uh, Captain Wallace to fulfill his life debt, he reminded him, hey, I got hurt for you. Right? And every time we gather, we remind ourselves of what Jesus did. That, hey, I got hurt for you. Right? When we take communion, when we sing songs about the crucifixion, when we read scriptures, when, when we listen to sermons, everything that we do in worship reminds us, hey, I got hurt for you, but there's still a critical difference. What's the difference between a life debt of obligation and a life debt of love? It's this. The relationship between the saved and the Savior. The difference between a life debt of obligation and a life debt of love is the relationship between the saved and the Savior. This year, we've been guided by an annual theme verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. And it says this. Hopefully you've got it memorized by now, or you will in just a second. We love because he first loved us. Let's all say that together. We love because he first loved us. In Psalm 22, David writes of future generations. In verse 30, he says, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. We are that future generation. We have been told about the Lord, and so we serve him because Jesus loved us before we were even born. It says in verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. What that means is that we're carrying it forward. 
in the same way as it has been declared to us about the Lord, and so we serve, we declare about his righteousness to a future generation. Jesus said at the end of his time on the cross, it is finished so that we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 22, 31, he has done it. The difference between a life that of obligation and a life that of love is the relationship between the saved and the Savior. When Jesus reminds us of how he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, it's not to guilt trip us into obedience. It's to remind us, see what kind of love the, the Lord has for you. That he would lay down his life. Brothers and sisters, we owe everything that we are, everything that we are, to Jesus, the King. What would it look like if we brought all of ourselves into submission to his kingship? I'll tell you this. When you come into submission to the kingship of Jesus, you're not going to find a manipulative master. You're not going to find someone who holds what he did for you against you. When you come into contact with Jesus Christ, you'll find the most loving, gentle, forgiving, compassionate friendship you've ever had. Brothers and sisters, as we enter into this new year, let us bring together, let's hold one another accountable to this. Let's encourage one another in our pursuit of Jesus. Let us all as a church, as one family, one body, bring all of us, all that we have, all that we are, the submission to the kingship of our loving Jesus. We bow Come, Holy Spirit. I'm just feeling led uh, for us to have a few moments of silence. So if you'll just, in your heart, uh, open yourself up to the voice of God, to the move of the Spirit. Maybe it'll come as a feeling, maybe a word, maybe a thought. You're not sure where it came from. But maybe just ask God, God, what part of me do you want to bring into submission to you? as we move out of our Advent season we remember once again 
equality with God something to be grasped, but instead you made yourself nothing, taking the form of a servant, of a baby in a manger. And you did it so that you could live the life we never could and die the death you all deserve. You remind us this morning of the life that we owe and show us how you're a, a master, a king of love, not of obligation. Guide us like sheep of your own flock. come into submission to your kingship. And God, as we move into a time of offering, I just have two requests. I ask that you would bless the gifts that are given, that you would use them in your kingdom, multiply them, and, and lead them to bear much fruit. And I ask also that you would bless the givers, that you would plant in them the gift of freedom that comes from giving things. Right this year.